This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we travel to Audley End House and Gardens in Essex to hear what life was like in a Victorian kitchen. There would have been three courses with anything between five and 15 dishes in each course served simultaneously on the table, arranged symmetrically. It was a very complicated way of arranging things on the table and diners would help themselves and each other. We find out about the property's most famous cook. She was somebody who worked very hard for her entire life, working her way up from a farmer's daughter in rural Devon to cooking for the aristocracy in a time when it was very, very rare indeed for women to reach that level of their profession. And how her recipes were only recently discovered. But first, here's what we're serving up on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. You'll see a lot of symmetry and harmony of proportion, not only in the rooms themselves, but also in the pieces of furniture that Adam designed for Kenwood. As time progressed and the research went on, it became pretty clear that the work was going to be these series of art objects, these series of vessels. What we wanted to do was to find a space that was a perfect space to show these works. And that's why I approached Stonehenge. And luckily, English Heritage came on board. He actually ended up having two memorial services, one as Eric Blair, his family, and one as George Orwell. And I think that's an interesting point because I think a lot of people who are in the public eye do find it helpful to be able to draw a distinction between their private life and their life as a, a sort of a famous person. Now, this week we're at Audley End House and Gardens in Essex in southeast England. In the 1600s, that's the reign of James I, Audley End was one of the country's largest and most opulent homes. Today, it's one of many English heritage sites where you can come and meet historical reenactors and discover the lives of some of the people who lived and worked in our nation's historic places. People like Audley End's Victorian cook, Mrs. Crocombe. A practically perfect pigeon pie. Mrs. Avis Crocombe was head cook at Audley End House during the 1880s. She kept many of her recipes, like pigeon pie, turbot, that's a fish, and apple cheese, which is a dessert, in a handwritten book. And it's thanks to the discovery of her book that we can get a closer insight into real life in a Victorian kitchen at that time. I'm meeting food historian Annie Gray at Audley End. You must be Annie. Hello, yes. To find out how Mrs. Crocombe's recipe book came to light. Yep, it's a slightly breezy day, but we're standing here in the service courtyard. So all the way around you, you can see the buildings that Avis Crocombe would have seen if she'd been here in 1881. Okay, where's the best place to go and uh, have a chat about that? I think we could go into Avis's kitchen. As you can hear, we're filming this morning, so there's a little bit of noise in the background as people are setting up to make another instalment of the wildly successful Avis Crocombe YouTube videos. Mrs Crocombe wasn't here for that long, was she? What do we know about when she arrived? Um, so Avis appears in the 1881 census. She did not appear in the 1871 census at Audley End. She was at that point in London. So we know that she was here in 1881 and we know that she left in 1884 because that's when she got married. Other than that, we don't really know. We think she probably started at some point in the late 1870s uh, and she left in 84. So she was probably here for six or seven years, which would be about normal, really, for a cook at that point. 
And she would have been working for Lord and Lady Braybrook in London, but also here in Essex. Would that be right? Yes. The pattern of life for the nobility at that point in the Victorian era was to have at least two houses. I mean, some had more than two. But of course, if you were an aristocrat, you sat in the House of Lords by right at that point, which meant that you were expected, or at least vaguely expected, to turn up and be in Parliament. So you would have a London house, which would mean that the Lord, the man because there were only men in Parliament at that point, would be able to attend Parliament, hence London Townhouse. It was also important for you to be in London for what was called the season. So if you had a daughter, as the Braybrooks did, Lady Augusta, uh, the season was when you would launch your daughter on society. So your daughter would be put out a little bit like cattle, it must be said, to go out to all the dances and hopefully snag herself a husband in the first or second year of her being out, as it were. Then each family would also have a country house. And in the case of the Braybrooks, that was here at Audley End. And that house would be somewhere that they might retreat to at the weekends um, but they would also mainly use it for shooting so during the shooting season which ran from uh, September through to February that was the real point where a house like this would be occupied and that would be because there would be huge shooting parties it was a, a real kind of a focus for leisure really as much as anything else okay Mrs Crocombe's recipes are very much a part of the story that we tell today because of the book that was discovered and then donated to the house. Can you tell us a bit more about how that book suddenly came to light? Yes, I at the time was running the team here. I used to play Mary Ann Bulmer, the first kitchen maid. And I got a call one day from Andrew Han, who was the historian attached to the project, who works for English Heritage, saying, we've just had this offer of this book. And, uh, and we think it, it might be actually something, something quite, quite uncommon. And we were always being offered this particular book by members of the public that had a recipe in it for Audley End pudding. And it was a sort of modern book that had been published, I think, in the 80s. So we just I thought it was probably that. But he said, no, 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 I've spoken to the man. And it honestly sounds like it might genuinely be be Avis Croken's manuscript book. Does that sound plausible? So I said, well, yes, because of course cooks all would have kept a manuscript cookbook. They would have written down their recipes. This sounds quite extraordinary. So fast forward on a couple of months and Mr. Stride, who was Avis's great, great nephew, I think, great, great, great nephew, there's lots of greats, was visiting the house for a concert. And this is why he'd, he'd rung up, because he knew he was visiting, he looked on the website, he'd seen the name of this person, he thought, oh, I'm related to her. I've got her cookbook in the back of a drawer somewhere. So he came in on this Saturday to go to one of the concerts they hold here in the grounds, and I came in to meet him, and he gave me this book. And, I mean... I, I was rendered virtually speechless. It was the book that Avis Crocombe had kept. It had her name in the front. It had her handwriting. It was a little black manuscript book um, with a hard cover, and you flicked through it, and, and there were her recipes in her handwriting. So it was an extraordinary moment. And what was brilliant about it was that the book is quite sort of... Um, well, cake-oriented, I think, is the best way to put it. There are about 147 recipes in it. And we were, of course, already cooking lots and lots of things in the kitchen, which were based on what I had researched. Um, they were based on what we knew cooks would have been cooking at this level. And so looking through that book, we were able to see that the decisions we'd made were right, that the recipes we were cooking were the kind of recipes she wrote down. And as time went on, we integrated some of the recipes from her cookery book into the daily interpretation. And the videos that we've made for YouTube, I would say about 70% of them are not from her manuscript cookbook, but the ones that are from it, we normally say that they're from it, and they are universally outstanding. And they're from the period, at least. Are they, are they taken from books that Mrs Crocombe would have had access to? 
Yes. Cooks, when they started in country houses, when they started even in a middle-class house, would have been encouraged to keep a book. And into that book, they would have written recipes that they found, recipes that they read, recipes from other cookbooks, recipes from other cooks. Sometimes they would get other cooks to write in their book. And this was a kind of Bible for them, really, as they went through. It might be that they wrote down a recipe that they had found that that was good, but with annotations, that kind of thing. So it's a kind of working book. I don't imagine that very many recipes in it are original. Mrs. Crocombe was not a cook book writer. She was a working cook. Some of the recipes are certainly from Eliza Acton's best-selling book of the period. So a lot of the videos that we have made for the Victorian Way videos are also Eliza Acton. There is a recipe in there where she's put that it comes from Dr. Bradbury of Cambridge. That's a recipe for meat jelly for invalids. There's a recipe that she's copied down from the Field newspaper, which was a sporting newspaper. And at the bottom of that, she actually says Lady Braybrook, Audley End. That one was one of the most exciting things in there. So she was copying down recipes from a large range of sources. Sources. But the crucial thing about it in some ways is that what she was doing was filling in gaps in her own repertoire. So she clearly had access to written cookbooks. And what she wrote into the book was the sort of bits and pieces she didn't have ready access to. So of the 147 recipes, the majority are for cakes or sweets. There are some savouries in there. You wouldn't be able to put together a full Victorian meal from the contents of Avius Crocombe's manuscript cookbook. There's one soup. There are no fish recipes. There are very few meat recipes, unless you count roast swan, which isn't really an everyday recipe, to be honest. But you could buy signets ready to fatten up for the kitchen table as late as the 1930s. So it was quite a common thing to cook, especially at Christmas, but not, not something we'll be doing video on anytime soon. Some of the videos that we've seen, pigeon pie, for example, I don't think we could get pigeon in a modern butcher's and certainly not in the supermarket, or can we? Where do you live? My goodness, you can get pigeon in nearly all the butchers around here. I know that some of our viewers do struggle with ingredients, mainly because a lot of the viewers are overseas. So we know from statistics that a lot of them are American, many are Filipino, um, there are Indian people who watch it. It's brilliant the way in which the Mrs. Crocombe has brought together so many global communities. But some do struggle with the ingredients. Pigeon in particular caused a furore, and I thought, my goodness me here pigeon is very easy to get hold of I mean a good wood pigeon from the countryside they are they're ten a penny and very cheap as well so the ones that we used for the video I think some were bought from the butchers so they're quite easy to get hold of I don't you probably get pigeon breasts in some supermarkets. They're quite a common ingredient. But it's not something you'd find in a local pub, would you, around here? Yes. You would? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pigeon's quite common on the menus once you get outside London. In London, it's quite common. Um, I mean, truffles, possibly slightly more unusual ingredient. But on the other hand, of course, truffles you get very easily in restaurants too. Pigeon pie, actually, in the Victorian era, is relatively plebeian because of the fact that pigeons were so ten a penny. A pigeon is something that the servants often would have eaten. But cooked right, it, it's, it's quite good. I think a lot of it is our cultural conceptions about what is edible. The pigeon pie recipe was a really good example because for all those people that were appalled by the feeds, there were lots of other people saying, well, what's wrong with you? Feeds are completely natural. If you go to an Asian restaurant, if you travel widely in Asia, you'll find all sorts of things that in the West we would turn our noses up at. I've had chicken feet on a menu when I was in Hong Kong and I thought they were amazing. They were one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten so all of these things it is a mixture of how things are cooked whether they are cooked with good ingredients by a skillful cook and also how we culturally are brought up to look at food all fascinating stuff Annie let's see if we can find out a bit more about Mrs Crocombe's life and the life of the servants as well where are we going next I'm going to take you to the servants hall and also the housekeeper's room which is where Mrs Crocombe and her fellow upper servants would have eaten their supper and their dinner 
the bells that you can see here as well would have been here in Mrs. Croken's day. So this is called the Bell Lobby. Uh, if you look around, you can see that all of these bells are labelled. So you've got um, gentlemen's dressing room, uh, Cornwallis dressing room, drawing room, dining room. And all of these are the bells that would have rung when the family wanted to summon their servants. So you'd have had a bench here and the footman would have been waiting here so that when the bell rung, they knew which one it was and could hasten through what at the time was the green baize door and upstairs to wherever they were wanted. So we haven't gone far from the actual kitchen, probably about uh, 20 odd feet. Yes, and, and you can see through that window there as well where the lamps are, that's the lamp room because the, this house never got electricity or got electricity in the Second World War. It was very, very backward. Um, the aristocracy eventually didn't have any money throughout most of the Victorian era and the Braybrooks were not the wealthiest of aristocrats. I mean, just the fact they were employing a female cook in 1881 shows that because one of the reasons women were employed was because they were a fraction of the wages of men. So it was quite rare to get a female cook in an aristocratic house. And if you look through that window, you can see that there are all of the lamps lined up and they would have been filled with oil on a daily basis and taken around the house. So brilliant fire risk. <laughs> yeah, you could say that again. <laughs> OK, well, let's go into the servants' hall. Or today, it would be what exactly? Today, this is the cafe. Um, it's a big space and it's ideal for getting lots of people in. You can see that there is a hung floor, so if I bounce on it, this is very, very echoey. But if you look down here by the fireplace, you can see that the real floor is about a foot lower. And this fireplace was put in when this became a servants' hall, which was in the very, very late uh, 18th century. At one point, this was the kitchen, actually, sort of around 1760, very briefly. And you can still see on the wall the outline there of these enormous hearths which at that point would have held the kind of things that are in the modern day, or modern day, 1881 kitchen. So spit roasting mechanism, huge amount of fire, flame, chafing staves, that kind of thing, would all have been on this back wall. Shall we find somewhere to sit down and have a quick chat about uh, what the servants would be up to? It's actually quite a big servants' hall. There would have been quite a lot of servants. By 1881, there were about 24, 25 indoor servants. That number did grow a little bit during the Victorian era. There were outdoor servants as well. So in here, you'd have had all of your lower servants. But this was not just a dining hall. This was also a leisure facility. The Christmas party was held here. So every year after Christmas, the Braybrooks would hold a Christmas party for the servants, and they would gather here. And at that point, it wouldn't just be the indoor servants. You'd have all the gardeners and all the estate workers. And so anyone who really was attached to the house. There is, I think, a habit of thinking of the English country house as somewhere that aristocrats lived and some servants worked. And it really does underestimate the importance of country houses in the landscape. So somewhere like this, obviously you've got your indoor servants, but you also have your gardeners, your gardeners' wives. Then you've got the people who are just paid by the day or on piecework who come in, so seasonal bulb planters in the gardens, people from the village who would come in when there were shoots to help pluck and gut all of the game, extra staff for the kitchens if they needed to take people in, you've got uh, all of the shops as well in the local village absolutely dependent on the house for the fact that someone is spending money there then you've got of course loads and loads of other people who might have been retired from the house there's no pensions at that point but the house would pay the pensions of ex-servants who might live in the village if you're poverty stricken you will rely on the house to supply your food because edible alms all the leftovers would go out every day to the gate to feed the poor I mean it's a huge huge thing the country house and the way in which it impacted on the local landscape was really significant how many people would have come for say the Christmas party here can you put a number on that? Uh, we think it's about 50 or 60 people. 
And how would they have been arranged? Would there just be two long benches and a giant sort of table? Do, do we know? Or? No, we don't really know. We think, well, in terms of eating arrangements, the norm in a servant's hall was to have one long table with benches either side of it and a fairly plain tablecloth. Uh, this wasn't the only eating space. This was just for the lower servants. But they would have four meals a day, just as they would upstairs. So the lower servants would have breakfast, dinner somewhere around midi, uh, tea, and then supper. And upstairs, they would have breakfast, luncheon, tea and then dinner because who you were how high status you were dictated what your meals were called hence dinner at lunchtime for lower servants and dinner at dinner time for upper servants for upper class people that's really interesting so just so i've got this straight in my head were there separate tiers of servants and how many servants were there in total in the house yes there were i i see i haven't even got on to that yet if you're sitting in here at lunchtime what i would call lunchtime in 1881 so what they would call dinner time one o'clock you've got your dinner uh, and your dinner is something fairly plain and quite plentiful lots and lots of fruit and vegetables possibly a big fruit tart or a big pudding something like that maybe a gingerbread cake um that would be your afters and to start off with you'd have had a stew of, of some form probably pork sometimes beef mutton as well very popular when you finish that when you got onto your second course the upper servants would get up and leave and they would go next door into the housekeeper's room and the upper servants are the housekeeper the butler the cook the governess if there was one ladies maids valets personal servants the people that were paid more and they would get off and they would go into another room to go and have another bit of their dinner and they're other bit of their dinner would often consist of things like leftovers from the table upstairs. So slightly nicer food, slightly posher food. So, so Leftovers yeah. from Lord and Lady Braybrook? Well, everything needs to be used. I think there is an idea sometimes that houses were very wasteful, especially when they served in the old-fashioned style à la française. And we think that the Braybrooks, being as they were fairly elderly in 1881, probably did still serve in some way à la française service. That's a service style where you have um, everything on the table at once. I was about to say... Qu'est-ce que ça veut dire? Which means, what does that mean? A la Francaise? A la Francaise style is usually a sort of banqueting style service. So in its heyday in the late 18th century, there would have been three courses with anything between five and 15 dishes in each course served simultaneously on the table, arranged symmetrically. It was a very complicated way of arranging things on the table and diners would help themselves and each other. Where are we heading now, Annie? Well, we've just come through what would have been the green bay's door um, into the main section of the house. So away to my left, you can see that corridor spreading down to what would have been the flower room, which was used for flower arranging. Uh, most of this corridor here was a servant's area for the male servants. So the house was quite gendered. This area would have been predominantly for the footman, for the butler. Down at the bottom, there's a butler's room, which is the equivalent of the housekeeper's room. Um, and then this room just here would have been Lord Braybrook's private dining room. Uh, and above here, are the guest, the guest apartments as well. Why would he have had a private dining room? For when he was privately dining. The main on dining his room own? Here, mm, on his own or perhaps with the family. The main dining room here seats about 20 people if you want it to. So quite a large space. So a lot of the time the family, if they were just here by themselves, if it was just Lord and Lady Braybrook, they would just dine in a much smaller space, much easier to heat, much closer to the kitchen as well, actually. And just a, an altogether different experience. Why have one dining room when you can have three? Well, absolutely. Right, Dan, you can see the staircase there, which is what, about 20 metres away, something like that? 
that if you go down to there and go up those stairs, you get directly to the main dining room. So there's often a kind of idea in houses that the food is always served cold because I think when we go round them, we're very used to seeing the kitchen at one end of the tour and the dining room at the other end. I think, oh, isn't it a long way? But actually, of course, if you are a footman, you're employed, you're paid more, the taller you are. Uh, so you've got very long legs. And the idea is you pick the food up in the kitchen and you leg it over to the dining room and it's served, if not piping hot, certainly quite hot. Uh, we know that cooks were sacked if they regularly served food cold. So people in the past were not eating lukewarm food. They were eating food at what I would call a reasonable eating temperature. We're just outside the private dining room for Lord and Lady Braybrook. One of the things that I suppose Victorian cooks would have to be aware of, and certainly modern chefs, is hygiene. Was that a really difficult thing to manage in those days? Uh, people were very aware of hygiene. They were very aware of what would happen if you ate food that was tainted or if you had poor kitchen hygiene. Just because they hadn't named germs didn't mean they didn't know exactly what they did. You can read any servant's manual of the time and it will be full of admonitions to tie your long hair back, to wash your hands regularly, to, to clean your... In many ways, I suspect that Victorian hygiene was better than some people today. Um, for example, I don't, don't know how many people today realise that you should wash your kitchen cloths at 90, because otherwise, you know, even if you're putting anti back in your washing machine, it, they're not going to be clean. If you do a modern day food hygiene certificate or a taught modern day food hygiene, then all of your kitchen cloths are changed every single day. You know, there is an awful lot of disposables that goes into the modern kitchen. Cloths are washed at 90, aprons are washed at 90, surfaces are constantly scrubbed down. And all of that was true of the Victorian kitchen. So yes, there was no anti-back spray, but there was boiling water. And yes, you couldn't have a plastic chopping board, but you did have sand to sand your chopping boards. Wooden chopping boards are one of my bugbears in modern life. I find that they always smell and people leave them standing and don't clean them properly. And so I suspect actually in most cases, the Victorian hygiene was possibly better than some people's today. Uh, the real Mrs. Crocombe, she still lives on um, through the, the cookbook, which was discovered and then donated to the house. What do you think she would make of the fact that here we are recording a podcast about her today? There's also a film crew filming an actress who's playing the role. How would she f have felt, do you think, of the fact that her memory still lives on so long after her death. I would like to think that she would be proud. She was somebody who worked very hard for her entire life, working her way up from a farmer's daughter in rural Devon to cooking for the aristocracy in a time when it was very, very rare indeed for women to reach that level of their profession. So she was a very, very good cook and a very determined woman, a real trailblazer in some ways. So I would hope that she would be extremely proud that her legacy lives on. I suspect she would probably have words with us about exactly what we're doing to her recipes and how well we're cooking them and her presentational style. But I, I hope that she would be very happy with what we're doing and, and celebrate what's happening. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To discover more about Mrs Crocombe, Head over to our YouTube channel to watch our Victorian Way playlist of videos featuring Audley N's famous cook creating a selection of her favourite dishes. Next week, we take in the art and architecture of Kenwood in northwest London. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.